Good morning. My name is Lori Turner, and our scripture passage today comes from the New Testament book of Acts. I'll be reading from chapter 21, verses 12 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. When we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But he said, why all this weeping? You are breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. When it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thanks, Lori. Well, I've been the pastor here for a little over a month, and in that month I've been asking uh, God a lot, what, what do you want for your church at Grace 242, God? You know, who do you want us to be, and what do you want to see out of our church? And, um, and that's what this sermon series, Less is More, is really about, is what does God want for his church at Grace 242? And so that's what we're going after today. And Today I have three stories that I want to tell you, and the first story comes from a man that I began to admire after I read a biography about him, and that man is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I read his biography uh, by Eric Metaxas that came out in 2011, and it's a thick book, but I'd recommend it to anybody. Um, it's a fa- fascinating book. Bonhoeffer is just a fascinating man, and it's thick, but you know you should do what I did and get the audiobook, and you can just listen to it while you drive. But uh, absolutely fascinating man, and that's when I began to admire Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a, um, a pastor in Nazi Germany. And so on February 4th, 1906, Karl and Paula Bonhoeffer brought their fourth and youngest son into the world. Dietrich was born mere minutes before his twin sister, Sabine, and he was one of eight Bonhoeffer children. And the Bonhoeffers were members of the social elite because Father Karl Bonhoeffer was a doctor of psychiatry and neurology at the local university and hospital. And eventually his work would take him to a new job and they would move the family to Berlin, Germany. The family was non-religious, so Carl and Paula were sort of taken aback and disappointed when their young 14-year-old son Dietrich expressed his desire to become a theologian. And the entire Bonhoeffer family was blessed with extreme intellect, social elites, and so being a theologian was kind of viewed as sort of a wasted opportunity by Carl and Paula. All right. And so regardless, their son Dietrich remained firm in his decision. So after just, at just 21 years of age, Dietrich graduated from Berlin University with a doctorate in theology, 21 years old. After graduating school, Bonhoeffer traveled to Spain to be an assistant pastor of a German-speaking congregation in Barcelona, And it was during this time that Bonhoeffer traveled to Spain that the Lord really kind of morphed Bonhoeffer from sort of an ivory tower academic theologian into more of a practitioner pastor sort of a guy. And God softened his heart for sort of the plight of the poor and sort of the the marginalized and the oppressed. And this is kind of when the practical side of Bonhoeffer's faith began to develop. After two years in Spain, Bonhoeffer returned to Berlin to find a Germany that was just desperate for a leader. Because in the wake of all the sanctions that Germany got slapped with in World War I, Germany was sort of a disgraced nation and the leadership was in turmoil and they were just ripe for a leader which provided the perfect soil for a dictator like Hitler to rise to power. 
Now still too young to be ordained in the ministry, Bonhoeffer set sail to America to work on his second postdoctoral thesis. <laughs> so his second postdoctoral thesis. And in 1930, Bonhoeffer's ship sailed past the Statue of Liberty in New York City, and Bonhoeffer enrolled in Union Theological Seminary. After one year at Union, Bonhoeffer returned to Germany to teach at his alma mater, the University of Berlin. And on January 30th, 1933, Adolf Hitler was elected as the Chancellor of Germany. And just two days after Hitler was elected, young Bonhoeffer, 26-year-old Bonhoeffer, would go on the radio and delivered a scathing speech decrying the power of the Fuhrer. Now that speech of Bonhoeffer's over the radio never was finished because it got cut off midway. With the rise of Hitler, Nazism spread to the German churches. And with a majority of Germany's churches compromised by Nazi ideology, Bonhoeffer was instrumental in starting the Confessing Church movement. Now the Confessing Church placed itself in direct protest to Nazi ideology because the Confessing Church held to biblical Christianity. And in 1934... Bonhoeffer met with other confessing church leaders at Barman, where they would pen the Declaration of Barman decrying the Reich Church. And Barman, the Declaration at Barman, is part of ECO's confessionals, by the way. The Reich Church required that all seminary students prove their Aryan racial purity. So even the seminaries are compromised. And so in 1935, Bonhoeffer became the director of the confessing church's new underground seminary at Frankenwalde. And in 1939, Bonhoeffer received notice that all men born in 1906, the year that Bonhoeffer was born in, they must now register with the German military. And so not wanting to join the Nazis, Bonhoeffer made his escape back to Union Seminary in America. And he was supposed to work as a pastor to the German refugees in New York City. And so on June 12th, 1939, just eight years after he left America the last time, Bonhoeffer returned to Union Seminary in New York City. And not even 24 hours after arriving back in New York, Bonhoeffer was unsettled and out of sorts. And so wanting to seek the Lord and hear the word of the Lord preached, he went over to nearby Riverside Church, where the sermon of the day came from James, but not the book of the Bible. Rather, the text was from the American philosopher, William James. And so disgusted, Bonhoeffer recounted the sermon in his diary as quite unbearable. Unsettled with his return to America and disenchanted with the theological liberalism that he found in New York City, Bonhoeffer felt his regret. And in July of 1939, Bonhoeffer wrote this to his friend Reinhold Niebuhr, who was one of the professors at Union Seminary. Bonhoeffer would write this to, you, to Niebuhr. He said, I have come to the conclusion that I have made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share in the trials of this time with my people. My brothers in the Confessing Synod wanted me to go. They may have even been right in urging me to do so, but I was wrong in going. Christians in Germany will face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, 
but I cannot make this choice in security. So you see his regret coming out, thinking, I made the wrong choice. I need to go back. And so on July 7, 1939, just one month after arriving, Bonhoeffer boarded a ship back to Berlin. And despite the danger, and despite being encouraged by his confessing buddies to stay in America in a safe place, and despite a cushy job pastoring the German refugees as a Union Seminary employee in New York City, Bonhoeffer returned to the dangers of Nazi Germany. Bonhoeffer's return to Germany would sort of define the rest of his life. He would become involved in the Valkyrie plot to assassinate Hitler, and as a result of that failed plot, the Nazis found enough evidence linking Bonhoeffer to the failed plot that he was imprisoned. And on April 9, 1945, Bonhoeffer was hanged at Flossenburg concentration camp and martyred. That was merely two weeks before the Allied troops would liberate the concentration camp at Flossenburg. So he missed his escape by two weeks. So despite the Nazism, despite the compromised German churches, despite being forced to be drafted into the military, despite Hitler, despite the dangers, despite the risk to his life, Bonhoeffer went back to the dangers of Germany. The mission of the gospel and the mission of discipleship and the mission of Jesus Christ was so important to Bonhoeffer that he put his life on the line by going back to suffer with his fellow Christians in the confessing church in Nazi Germany. Bonhoeffer traded the safety of America for the risk of Nazi Germany. Story number one. Next story is about a man you probably have heard of. His name is Paul. And our text today comes from the last part of Paul's missionary journeys. And the author of Acts, that's Luke, is sort of setting up these journeys that Paul is taking, this wrap-up journey. He's setting it up as sort of the climax to Paul's earthly ministry. And Paul has this mission to get to Jerusalem. And you'll see there's sort of a, a sense of foreboding, and there's a sense of closure as Paul heads toward Jerusalem. Because in chapter 20, Paul says this, Paul was hurrying to get to Jerusalem, and if possible, in time for the festival at Pentecost. So he wants to get to Jerusalem, that's his destination, and he wants to get there in time for Pentecost. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit is giving him this sense of foreboding and this sense of trouble, because Paul says this in Acts 20, I don't know what awaits me in Jerusalem, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. And so there's a sense of foreboding about getting to Jerusalem, but Paul is determined to get there regardless. And so at this point, he's meeting with the Ephesian elders in this city of Miletus, and then he travels a one-day journey on ship to Kaz, and then he travels a one-day journey on ship to Rhodes, and he travels another one-day journey on a ship to Patria. So he's kind of making these journeys, saying his goodbyes. You get a real sense of closure that this is kind of Paul wrapping up his earthly ministry. And then he kind of uh, buckles in for the long journey from Patria to Phoenicia, and he's going to land at the harbor of Tyre. And Acts 21 says that they pass Cyprus on the left, so you can see the route that he's taking on his way to Tyre. And when he gets to Tyre, he goes to shore and finds the local believers, and he stays with them a week, all right? And what happens at Tyre? These believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go to Jerusalem. So again, even the believers at Tyre are sharing this sense of foreboding, that they're like, Paul, something bad is going to happen if you go to Jerusalem. Paul, don't go there. Now, something ought to catch our eye as Bible readers when we read this. 
right? Because it says they prophesied through the Holy Spirit that he should not go to Jerusalem. So now as a Bible reader, when I read this, I go, wait a minute, is Paul ignoring the will of the Holy Spirit? Like, is he not doing God's will by going to Jerusalem? Because it said they're prophesying not to go to Jerusalem in the Holy Spirit. Well, I think as Bible readers, we ought to think about the, uh, the fact that Paul is already getting a sense of foreboding from the Holy Spirit, and that's being corroborated by these people, these believers in Tyre. And so the truth, the word that the believers are getting from the Holy Spirit, that there's going to be trouble in Jerusalem, that's true. But these believers in Tyre have misapplied that word to Paul. They've said, oh, there's danger in Jerusalem. We're agreed on that. But then their, their uh, application of that is, no, don't go there, Paul. And that's where they go wrong. All right, that the interpretation of the word of the Lord is not necessarily don't go to Jerusalem. Paul's interpretation is, no, I got to go. So that's how we can harmonize that when we read about the believers prophesying in the Holy Spirit, that everybody's agreed in the Holy Spirit that there's going to be trouble in Jerusalem. But Paul is saying, no, I need to go. I need to go. And so Paul boards a ship in Tyre and all the believers come out and they wave their top hats and they wave their hankies as they bid Paul farewell. And he says, this is the last time I'm going to see you. And so he gets on the ship and they wave goodbye to him and he travels another day to Ptolemais and then he ends up in Caesarea. And what happens when he gets in Caesarea? Well, again, this is like deja vu. This man named Agabus comes out and Agabus begins to prophesy. And he says this, Agabus says this, the Holy Spirit declares and he grabs Paul's belt, all right? And Agabus wraps up his, his wrists with Paul's belt. And he says this, he says, The Holy Spirit declares, So shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jerusalem leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. So Agabus grabs Paul's belt and he wraps up his arms. He says, You see my wrists? This is what's going to happen to you, man, if you go to Jerusalem. This is your belt. This is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be bound in Jerusalem. And now the believers are watching this and they're going, oh man, this really sounds like bad news. And so they say this, when we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. You're going to get in trouble there. We love you, man. And you can understand the concern that these believers are expressing for their brother. If there's going to be trouble there, don't go. Just like Bonhoeffer's buddies encouraged him, go flee to America. Right? You'll be safe there. You can empathize with these believers that are like, don't go. And Paul says in verse 13, why all this weeping? You're breaking my heart. I'm ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. And finally they give up. Because in verse 14 they say, when it was clear that we couldn't persuade Paul, we gave up and said, Lord's will be done then, I guess. Lord's will be done. So Paul, regardless of this sense of foreboding, he even tells these people as he's seeing them, this is the last time you're going to see me. And you get the sense that this is going to be the end for Paul. Despite all this danger, despite the sense of foreboding, he's on a mission to get to Jerusalem. Now, when I read this story in my Bible, I took pictures of the headings because this is like how I experienced it when I first looked at it in preparation for this week in my Bible. So the first heading you get is this. This is an actual picture of my Bible. So the first heading is Paul's journey to Jerusalem. Okay, yeah, you see him traveling from town to town, city to city, getting all the sense of foreboding, getting the prophecies from the believers. Then the next heading is this. Paul arrives at Jerusalem. Okay, so he made it. He said he would go there, and he did. He made it to Jerusalem. Then what happens in my life application Bible is you turn the page, and the very heading on the next page is Paul is arrested. <laughs> it's like, well, I saw that one coming, right? <laughs> Turns out the Holy Spirit knows what he's talking about, <laughs> right? So Paul gets to Jerusalem, and in one page later, he's already arrested. And so what happens is he gets arrested at the temple, and there's this mob that forms, and they're angry with him. And Paul is, Jerusalem is a dangerous place for Paul for two reasons. 
Because he's got two camps that are really bad with him. First camp is the Jews and the Jewish religious leaders. Because Paul is preaching a message that the Jewish religious leaders do not like. Because Paul is preaching a message that in Christ, God has extended his plan or extended his family beyond Jews to Gentiles as well. And now Gentiles have been included in the plan of God and in the family of God. And Jews don't like, the the Jewish religious leaders, I should be more specific, don't really like that message that now the plan of God is extended out to Gentiles who believe in Jesus. All right, they don't like that. So the Jews are mad with Paul. The Jewish religious leaders are mad with Paul. And then he's also on the bad side of the Romans because Paul is preaching Christ to the exclusion of the Roman gods. The Romans had this pantheon of gods. And so if you had a god, they just stick them in the pantheon. It's like a closet of gods. You know, oh, you got a god, we'll just stick them in the god closet. Like, yeah, and then all the gods go in the god closet. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. We only worship one god, and that's Jesus. And so he's preaching Christ to the exclusion of all the Roman closet of gods, all right? And they don't like that either. So this is a dangerous place for Paul because he has two people, two camps that are in power who really don't like him. And sure enough, he gets mobbed at the synagogue or mobbed at the temple. And the Roman guards see what's going on and they have to actually step in. And by stepping in, they save his life. And then they kind of take him aside. And, And so Paul is arrested. And that is the beginning of the end for Paul. Because when he's arrested in Jerusalem, now he's under arrest, and so now he has to hear his court, or he has to make his case in the Roman courts, and he gets transferred to this governor. And this Roman governor hears his case, and this Roman governor says, I can't make a decision. So the Roman governor kicks it to another guy higher. So he gets transferred to the next Roman governor who's higher up the chain, and that Roman governor hears his case and says, okay, I don't know what to do. I'll kick you to this Roman governor, and, and so on and so forth, until he gets transferred to Rome, where now he's under house arrest in Rome, preaching the gospel, and eventually, the Bible doesn't record this, but eventually Rome, uh, Paul would be martyred, killed for his faith in Rome. And so that arrest in Jerusalem is the beginning of the end for Paul. But despite the risk, Paul went to Jerusalem anyway. Paul risked his life. He risked the safety of all these little towns that are full of believers and love him for the dangers of Jerusalem. Last story is this guy. We know who this guy is. Jesus also had a mission to go to Jerusalem. All right. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 9, 51. He says, As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So again, both Paul and Jesus were resolute on getting to Jerusalem. And now Jesus is God, so he doesn't need believers to prophesy for him. He's prophesying about Jerusalem himself, and he says this. He says, listen to me, to his disciples, and remember what I say. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. And then in Luke 18, he says this, Taking the twelve disciples aside, Jesus said, Listen, we're going up to Jerusalem, where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. Well, what are those predictions? He will be handed over to the Romans, and he will be mocked, treated shamefully, and spit upon. They will flog him with a whip and kill him, but on the third day he will rise again. And so Jesus is prophesying all this bad stuff that's going to happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem. And if you're a disciple, you're like, Jesus, just don't go there. It's going to be all bad there. Why would you go? But Jesus was so committed to the mission of his father that despite the dangers and the risk and certain death, he went regardless. And so Jesus arrives to the city of Jerusalem 
And we know this story. This is Palm Sunday because the believers are all excited and they hail him and they wave their palm branches and they spread, spread their cloaks on the ground and they say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the name. And, you know, our God saves and he, he arrives to an audience that's ready to receive him and praise him. Well, that was the beginning of the week. And the latter half of the week is a total contrast because now in the latter half of the week, Jesus gets arrested in Gethsemane. So Jesus is arrested in Jerusalem, just like Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. And then Jesus has to have his case made in front of the Roman courts, just like Paul made his case in front of the Roman courts. He goes before Pilate, and he doesn't even make his case. He just appears before Pilate. Jesus is mobbed in the same way that Paul was mobbed, and the mob spits on him and flogs him and and jeer him, and you know, and and then ultimately, what happens? Jesus dies. He's executed, just like Paul dies and is executed. I tell you the stories of these three men because are you seeing a theme? All three of these men were so committed to the mission of God that they risked their lives. Bonhoeffer traded the safety of America. He had a cushy job working for a seminary, pastoring German refugees in New York City where there is no threat. And he traded that all in for the risk of Nazi Germany and it cost him his life. Paul went through all these little towns that love him, where he has a base of believers who welcome him in, and he could stay for as long as he wanted. And the believers even told him, don't go to Jerusalem. But he went regardless, at risk to his life, and it cost him his life. And Jesus traded the safety of being an earthly king, the safety of being the type of king that everyone was looking for. He traded that for the misery and the risk to his life of the cross. And so Bonhoeffer and Paul faced probable death and Jesus faced certain death. And regardless, they were so committed to the father's mission that they traded in the safety that they had for the risk to their life that was the father's mission. And I bring you these three stories and say all this because will we be the same way? Will Grace 242 be the same way? Are we willing to risk up to our lives For the gospel of Jesus Christ, are we willing to trade the safety for the risk of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's really safe to build buildings. It's really safe to invite people to church that look like us and think like us and act like us and live by us. It's really safe to stay north of County Line Road. It's really safe to build some programs in this church. It's really safe to follow the steps of making some sort of attractional thing that people will want to come to. It's really safe to get a really awesome worship band up there. It's really safe to get a pastor who's got the golden tongue and can speak really well. Those are all really safe things. But are we going to trade that all in for the risk of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for opening up our lives, for clearing out parts in our schedule so that we can actually be with somebody and pour into somebody intentionally and disciple somebody? Or are we actually going to step outside of our comfort zone and talk to people that don't look like us or that are unlovable? It's easy to love the lovables. It's easy to love the kids who love youth group. It's hard to love the kids who have separated parents, who never show up to things on time, who don't shower regularly. All right, It's hard to do those kinds of things. Are we going to trade the safety for the risk of the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And it might cost our lives, folks. Because we're living in a world that increasingly hates us. And so are you willing to risk your life for this? Because Bonhoeffer was, Paul was, and Jesus was. Now, I could sit here and ask you, are you willing, church, to risk your life? And you know what the right answer is. You know in your head that the answer is, yes, I'm willing to risk my life. 
But there is no way that you, on your own, in your sinful, fallen flesh, can say yes to that. If I stand up here and say, this could cost you your life, and you have to be willing to give you your life, give Jesus your life. You can say, yes, I'm willing. I'm willing to give my life. I'm willing to sacrifice my life. But we are too compromised by sin, too sinful, too self-centered in our sin to be able to say yes on our own to that. The only way we can say yes to the call on our lives to risk our lives for the gospel is in the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to fill us and utter that yes for us because we're too sinful to utter it ourselves. Look at Paul. He went to Agabus and Agabus was, was showing him the belt around his, his wrist, right? And he said, this is you, Paul. If you go to Jerusalem, this is you. And Agabus was, was prophesying the dangers of Jerusalem. But in that moment, Agabus was also prophesying Paul's binding to the Holy Spirit. Look at what Paul says in Acts 20, 20, 22, 23. And now I am bound by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. And so the only way that we can say yes to the risk of our lives is if we say yes because we are bound to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit utters that yes for us. That's the only way we can say yes to the risk of our lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I ask us, are we going to be bound to the Holy Spirit so that we can say, yes, I'm willing to give my life for this. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That says, I'm so bound in the Holy Spirit that this Holy Spirit utters the yes for me. I'm willing to risk my life for this. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of, and that's the kind of church that God wants here for Grace 242.